0: It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Diazobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. We have someone here who was here about a year ago and she made such an awesome impact and impression on us that we had to bring her back because this lady knows some stuff. And we have here Madam Chair, Dr. Joyce Jackson. Welcome again to Count
1: Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: It's that time of year in South Louisiana. It's towards the end of the spring and the summer is moving in. The skies are blue, the sun is shining bright, and everybody's singing the blues. We did a story uh, several weeks ago on there. the The Neal family, a guy named Rafer Neal, mother of blues, Miss Shirley Neal. And you wrote an article years ago when I had a magazine called Refreshing Magazine mm-hmm. on Rafer Neal, you remember that?
1: Yes, I do, I do. Because he had passed then. He yeah, yeah, had so just I, passed, right? Yes, yeah, so I got really got my information from his his children.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. so you, you, you got it from the uh, horse's mouth, like to say, right? <laughs> Close to it.
1: <laughs> so now we, what
0: we're going to do here today is that we're going to uh, talk about how did the blues come about? What is the
1: blues? <laughs> well, first, it's, it's, a, it's a genre of music. Uh, uh, it's sort of created by blacks after the Civil War during the Reconstruction era. And it was created during that time because of the changes that were going on within the community within the black community you find like before the civil war you had music of course being performed by blacks sort of like the entertainment for the the planters during slavery Uh, so they were singing they were uh, playing instruments basically string instruments during that time and they were Basically the entertainment, you know, they would perform at the plantation homes at restaurants and wherever else that whites wanted to be entertained. So there was already already entertaining these people. people. Oh yes. And of course there were, you know, the work songs, the spirituals, and all of that was very prominent during the, um, during the slavery period. So you're
0: telling me they had a reason to sing the blues because they were (laughs) in slavery.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, no, you know, the the blues came about most of. you might say scholars of the blues say during Reconstruction era because we know it was happening during slavery. But people start writing about it during the Reconstruction era and because things were changing. So the music was changing. So you have to look at the music. And I always say music is just a mirror of culture. So you can find out what is going on in the culture of a people by listening to the music, particularly the folk music and this was coming out of the plantation era going into the reconstruction era of course blacks were emancipated after emancipation there were major migrations going from the south to the north going from the rural areas to the city areas you know you have many things happening and you're coming out of slavery you don't have no type of economic clout you don't have no education you don't have any type of um, political clout you know, but you got to move now. You got to get off the plantation. And some actually stayed on the plantations. Right. Yeah, that's when the because, started. Yeah, doing sharecropping work. And so they moved on and then the music also moved on. So it changed and, and the blues developed. The country blues developed during this time. And a lot of people say, well, it was the Mississippi Delta but you know we also have those like me and others say well it could have developed in Louisiana too we were going through the same thing that the folks were going through in (laughs) Mississippi (laughs) and you, you have arguments for both sides but I think but even Why, Chicago I, Chicago claiming the blues though. Well, The Chicago <laughs> claimed the blues only because it's the, the people from the South moved to the North, to All Chicago. Right and so it was just some of the same people yeah. going to Chicago and New York and moving North migrations. And that changed a lot of life situations for blacks. Looking at the South, and looking at the movement of the blues in the south, yeah, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, all those places we were having the same conditions basically. But Mississippi, a lot of people talk about Mississippi because that's how the ethnomusicologists, the folklorists, the musicologists were writing about Mississippi more than any other area. You look at people like Charters um, and um, John and Alan Lomax, they were moving down from washington dc from the library of congress to come down in the south to record folk music they were folklorists and that's some musicologists. they were coming here to record the music so where would they go and you think oh what's the worst area of the world for black folks during this period they're coming in the 30s 20s and 30s and they went to the south they went to mississippi and because uh, they knew it was a you know just a really bad place for for blacks as far as economics and you know education et etc cetera, et cetera. they were recording a lot in Louisiana especially in the 30s the 20s and 30s uh, and of course they would go into the prisons because where do you have work songs where do you have a group of and, and they were targeting men more than women and so where do you have a group that you you know just right there very convenient for you to go and record and they were coming down with these huge recording units. Um, you know, they didn't have, we didn't have the little tiny <laughs> recorders and digital recorders that we have now. They had these huge units, where they would come and, and have them in the trunk of the car or the van. And they would take these recording units around to the prisons and into the black communities.
0: And, and you said that you, the United States government paid. People to come do this in the south.
1: Yeah, well, it was the it, it was the uh, Library of Congress.
0: Library of Congress. Yeah. So for for Smith. Uh, for the federal Library for, of okay, Congress. Okay, then. So they paid them to come here.
1: Yes. And capture
0: the history. Yes. But did they did they call it the blues at the time?
1: Yeah, they were called. Well, by the twenties and thirties, yes, they were calling it the blues. They were calling it the blues actually before then, because you know that's why some of the arguments are there for Louisiana. We know that a number of the traditional jazz musicians were playing the blues before they start playing traditional jazz you know and, and that's that's where part of that argument is because we not only have the recordings but we actually have the 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 music itself saying something 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 blues or blues something something you know in the title Oh, okay. So okay. And the title, so you had printed music, you know, and you had it in the title. It, a lot of people look at W. C. Handy uh, writing the first blues. So he had blues in his um, in yep. the titles of his music. Where, where W. W. Handy was from? W. C. Handy was Memphis. He was in that area, and uh, he was um, writing music. You know, a lot of people credit him with that. But we have the first recording of the blues in 1921 by Mamie Smith, a female, a female blues singer. Where was she from? Cincinnati. From Cincinnati. Right. And, (laughs) but she, Perry Bradford was the, the musician was the, the, um, the composer and she wrote the lyrics, she, and they, you know, communicate, they, um, coordinated. And she performed in 1921, recorded on OK Records. That was the first recording of the blues done by a black woman. And the uh, Crazy Blues was the title of the song. It sold 75,000 copies in the first month. That's when the uh, recording industry knew that the blues would really sell. So that was a a very important production of that song. They only could do it if they used the white band and not uh, Mamie Smith's band. Here is The Crazy Blues. And she came, you know, out of that vaudeville tradition well, and vaudeville? minstrelsy, vaudeville, it's like, a, um, it's like a variety show, but an early variety show, music, dancing, skits. You know, uh, even some poetry, some ensemble singing, even some quartets performed in minstrelsy and vaudeville shows. Well, vaudeville came out of minstrelsy. And minstrelsy, of course, that we know started in the early 1800s by whites in the North. They came down to do parodies of blacks they were you know just exaggerating black life and on the plantation mo- mo- mockery mockery yeah well, a parody yeah a mockery like, a parody of they, blacks. there was paint they face and black face yeah, okay. yeah they call them black face they put grease black grease on their face but you know
0: when i was at lsu they were doing that students were doing it you remember well, that? i don't remember that i <laughs> <laughs>
1: Remember that so that wasn't that, was that moment. that was in the 70s. So. Right, and, that, yeah, and it was very controversial even then. And, you know, a lot of blacks really um, uh, don't like the fact that many of us participated in minstrelsy too. It wasn't just white groups that participated in minstrelsy. There were black minstrel troops before the Civil War. Because, you know, they felt that, well, shoot, if the the whites can pretend they're us, we can do us better than them, right? (laughs) Right, right. So So they'll their face, face too? But anyway, yeah, they actually put the black cork on their their faces. You know, sometimes with the white around the lips and all of that. And to perform themselves, they saw it working in the white communities because whites were performing for whites in blackface. Pretending acting to be... be. Yeah, they were caricatures of of blacks. Uh, But they felt that, you know, very exaggerated life of blacks on the plantation. So blacks, we we can do it too. But the thing about minstrelsy is is it was a sociological phenomenon because blacks were able to move into that. They actually exaggerated their lives too, but this was entertainment, right? they entertaining people, blacks and white audiences. And so it was, you know, they were musicians, dancers, um, you know, like some played instruments, some performed. They even had, like I mentioned before, quartets in minstrel shows. Many of the quartets got their start in minstrel. Scott Joplin started in a minstrel show. Who's Scott Joplin? Scott, <laughs> Scott Joplin was a black ragtime performer. He was a composer, a ragtime composer and, you know, pianist. And he got his start in minstrelsy. So you, some of the big name folks that we know, you know, got their start in minstrelsy. It was the first form of entertainment that blacks could be involved in from the, from the ground. To, you know, from from like working the shows, scheduling the shows, doing the costumes, doing um, composing it, everything was done by blacks. So it's a whole production. And that was in the 1920s. And no, no, 30s? we're talking about 1800s. 1820s. 18, 18, 1800s. Yeah, 1830s, 40s, and then actually the blacks started before the Civil War ended. And that you know people think that yeah, but blacks, there were some blacks that were free. Especially in the northern part of the U.S., and they saw what the white ones did. We can do it too. So
0: now you say that the lady Mimi. Most bands came out of out
1: of the minstrelsy. Well, no, no, not, I'm not saying most of them did, but I'm saying that a lot of the early black entertainers got their start in minstrelsy. Whether they were booking agents, music, you know, instrumentalists, singers, dancers, comedians. You know, look at people like Red Fox and all them, they started coming out of that vaudeville era. They did Amos. Yeah, all that, you know, because people look at them as being uh, kind of like a minstrel act. Amos and Andy. But look at what Amos and Andy started for black actors. That was the beginning. Somebody had to start and they had to start doing, though, you know. And it was like the being thing. the buffoon, yes. you know, acting as a buffoon. And it, but it moved on and they opened the doors for others. And that's why we have to give them credit. And a lot of people criticize oh, you watching that, Amoson and this stuff. It's, it's be funny though. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it
0: was funny, you know. We, we, we can entertain. We, we, we can entertain. Mamie, Mamie Smith. Smith. Okay, she was the first. She recorded the first blues. The first blues. A female. Yes. From Ohio? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, what's her story? What well,
1: it's just that, you know, she came out of that vaudeville tradition. Minstrelsy sort of moved into vaudeville. Vaudeville was just a, maybe a higher level of minstrelsy because it was a variety show. You know, and what they call it, a, well, they had these this organization that would book various black acts, you know, you know African-Americans performing, and they would book them, and they'd call them... <laughs> Theater Owners Booking Association. It's called TBOA, and blacks, you know, who involved in it just used to call it "tough on black asses," because <laughs> they were the ones who would book them and say, "You got to be here at this time. You got to do this," and, you, and they negotiate the price or whatever they're going to play, uh, uh, pay the performers, and this for this particular theater in this city. So they were like booking agents.
0: So, so the blues, not the jazz, not, uh, not big band music, orchestra, the blues was some of the first music that allowed us, allowed the, the people of African descent to move out to perform?
1: Yeah, yeah. The blues was one. Uh, that was one of the main genres. Well, men were doing it for the most part, you know, as a singular sol- as a soloist, a, a man and his guitar sit on the porch and you play when those units came down from DC from the uh, Library of Congress that's that's what they were looking for they were looking for these men It's interesting to note that the community decided who was going to perform who was going to get recorded because the the folks down from the library of congress would come and they would go into the community they didn't know where people lived they were clueless so they'd have to go to the man that you know saw this man on the street and they would go and ask him well, what was the place the person around here that's playing a guitar or that's singing and that's how they would go around to the community just asking randomly, just asking people, who's around here can play some music, who can sing?
0: So the community gu- guided the, the people from the government to go to find the right people. Who, who, okay. yeah. So they determined who was the, who was the, the They
1: determined a lot of the early blues recordings. And who were some of those people, the names? Well, I mean, I mean some different communities different, okay. all over the South. They were moving. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and that's how we got a lot of those recordings in the and, Library of Congress, not in the Smithsonian.
0: And you, and you had the opportunity to experience some of you? No, well,
1: your I talk, I used to talk to Alan Lomax. Now, who's who Alan Lomax? It was John and Alan Lomax. It was the father and son team that went down in the 20s and 30s. Now, John, John was the father. Alan was the son. But Alan, you know, he lived... To be, I mean, I'm trying to figure out exactly what year he passed, I don't know, but I used to see him. I worked at the National Endowment for the Arts, and I, his mother, I mean, his sister, Bess Lomax, was my supervisor. So she arranged, she, I was an ethnomusicologist finishing up my PhD at Indiana, and I got a job there. Well, I was a fellow, a National Endowment for the Arts a business management fellow and I worked for her and her in the folk arts area. So she arranged for him, for me to go and talk to him. Talk to in her In New York, and arranged for me to go and talk to Alan Lomax in New York, he, he lived in New York. So what was that experience like? It was a wonderful experience, cause you know, I had read his books, he had written about the blues and he, he, he wrote about his, him and his father going down there to, to do this, these recordings when he was very, very young. And so I had a chance. I, I walked in his apartment and it's like an archives. It's a musical archives with not only music court uh, recordings, you know, these real, to reel <laughs> tape recordings, but he had videos too at the time. You know, I mean, it's, it was just phenomenal. I mean i was just you know was able to really sit there and have a conversation with him i didn't even think about recording it at the time (laughs) because i'm just so awestruck that i'm here talking to alan lomax right and it's in the 70s (sighs) no this is in um the 80s 80s, yeah (laughs) and then i used to see him because after i worked there and uh they would call me back during the summers for the folk life festival that they had at uh at the smithsonian and he would usually always be there. So then I'd have a chance to chit chat with him again at the festivals. Um, so that that was really it was really interesting. And I you know I just didn't even know during the time and who you know but I knew he was you know who he was. He was the folklorists, ethnomusicologists that came down to my <laughs> state. <laughs> you're young and you're, you just don't right. know because I should have recorded those conversations. Do you have, you have any pictures of you all together? I do have, yeah, I have a couple of pictures of us oh, together. Okay, I yes. have to put, dig them out, but oh, yeah, okay. I do. Yeah, that was that was really... So, so
0: now he, he exposed you to a higher level of what was going on in the South?
1: Oh, he just blues. told me what he and his dad did. You know, he just we just talked about it, you know, and that's how, and I know he's written about it in some of his books, but I got first-hand information from him directly. How he used to go around to Angola, and how they, he helped uh, Huddy Ledbetter, you know, in the, the, the bluesman Huddy Leadbelly.
2: Uh-huh.
1: well, he, they call him, his name is really Leadbetter, but they call him Belly because he gotten shot. Got a couple of slugs in. Oh, <laughs> in lead! His i was about to say lead. He got some lead yes. in it, bro. Yes. Oh, okay. So that's why they call him that. But they helped him get a pardon from the governor because of his music. He, you know, they recorded him so much in the in the um, in, in prison that um, they helped him get a pardon. And he was, and he actually rode around with them as they recorded other musicians. And you know, they so they got a lot of recordings of him.
0: Now, this gave you opportunity to sit at the feet of these men that was doing mm-hmm. this.
1: Well, part. Alan, 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 His the father son. had His died long but ago. But you said
0: but you had the opportunity to, to find out how they got to this point. Mm-hmm. But, but let's go back. So, we're going to talk about the blues, but let's go from the female, because you said a woman is the one.
1: Who yeah, the yeah. Well, she was the first one that recorded, recorded the blues, but the,
0: the, the men was singing the blues, but they, they didn't get the exposure that the women got?
1: Right, initially. Well, I mean, they world. were, well, they, you know, you got to look at the tenor of the times. The women, this, we talking the, the decade of the 20s. That's when you had... What 1920s. Was, 1920s. That's when you had what they call the classic blues. And why did they call them classic blues? Why not country blues? Or, well, they came out, like I said, came out of the vaudeville tradition, came out of minstrelsy vaudeville. And so they were the ones who would perform and they had their long gowns and dresses on and they were all dressed up. And I've actually heard um, another blues woman talk about the fact that she did not like to perform in the juke joints and, um, you know, in the bar rooms and stuff like that because a fight could break out any time and you didn't have any protection. She says, so she would rather perform in a huge you know, ballroom or community center or whatever, where they would usually have some type of security and um, a, a police or security around the place to, to have the protection. But if, when you're in a juke joint, <laughs> there's no protection. But the, the women performed, and, and, and basically they performed for a lot of. Um, White clubs, and and that was you know we we look at this we have to look at all the uh, the ramifications of the blues is not you know just entertainment but you have to look at the settings where this was going on in, and they were in white clubs. Well, basically the white men did not want black men singing to their women, especially you know some of this lyrics could be oh, serenading women. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know uh, so they would allow the black women to come in into the white clubs and sing. So they would come in with their long gowns, you know, dressed to the hilt. And the men wouldn't threaten by it. And and, and, and no, no, and they could sing and they would only have like a trio and wouldn't be a big band. And they started off with two or three uh, musicians that they would sing with. And uh, so it was a very classy affair and they call it the classic blues. and it, it, the, But the thing that was interesting, though, it, the women were only, they sort of ascended for one decade. You get people, and we talked about Mamie Smith, you get Mer- Gertrude Ma Rainey, you get Billie Holiday, and then you got Bessie Smith. She wasn't related to Mamie. So you got these three women that were just in their heyday during the the 20s and 30s. But it it was mainly during the 20s that the women had the the major role of the blues singers. This decade of the 20s was very important for the classic blues because the other thing that was happening during that time was uh, the, the movement that we refer to as the Harlem Renaissance, historical era and the Harlem Renaissance was also referred to as the new Negro movement. It was very conscious raising movement when a lot of African-Americans came, uh, not just African-Americans, but a lot of people of color migrated to New York. So we're talking about blacks around the United States as well as Caribbeans and Africans migrated to New York because this was sort of like the Mecca, especially for blacks, of black consciousness. And so the Harlem Renaissance was a very important period, but again, it only lasted for a decade. But this is also when um, a lot of the ideas of many of the blacks in the area wanted to be integrationists, they didn't want to be separatists, they wanted to show the world how they could also become American, Americanized and they felt that they should lift the race to the highest. And one of the ways they did this was through literary arts, the musical arts, theatrical arts. With the music, of course, and talking about the blues, they really sort of downplayed the country blues and they saw that as low, low culture. But the classic blues was really popular during this time because they felt that it was the and, and they called it the classic blues. So this is when uh, the women were really ascended to, to uh, the heights within the Harlem Renaissance era. So you ha- they, they went into these clubs and they dressed in their finest in the black and white club. But the Harlem Renaissance was a scene you know, that also brought about, um, uh, perpetuated the classics. And, uh, of course, you know, jazz was on the scene, too, quite prevalent during that time. And they looked at jazz as being a classical music. Classic blues had its heyday for the women during that time. And, of course, after the Harlem Renaissance, which lasted about a decade, and so did the ascendancy of the uh, classic blues singers. But it ended around 1929. So that was also the time when we had the, um, the uh, Depression came in blacks weren't in vogue as much uh, during the 30s. Uh, So, you know, a lot of things happened because gospel music ascended, you might say, because uh, Thomas Dorsey was very prolific in his compositions during that time because he really wanted to make a good sound, a very happy sound, and he wanted, as he said, to give good news in a bad time. The classic blues sort of declined a bit and uh, gospel accelerated. That is also when a lot of the country blues became popular again. Uh, spoke about John and Alan Lomax came into uh, the South in the 30s and started recording the, uh, the country blues and the other traditional uh, folk songs and folk singers. So um, the Harlem Renaissance, again, was a very important era for the classic blues singers. And you find that after that, they went back to really recording a lot of the men. Um, and, and so, so it was like before they would get the men, uh, you know, solo bluesmen, and afterwards solo bluesmen. And then they started, you know, getting the, the bands and everything <laughs> larger. And you, you, you have that happening because, again, looking at migration, moving from the, the country to the city, moving from the south to the north, you get bigger venues that you have to play for. And so you, need, you can't just have this one long guitarist. You know, you just think about the logic. You've got to have a band now so everybody can hear and so they moved to the big bands and the the bluesmen you know the big blues bands uh but but the women were really marginalized even though they were out there in the recording you don't have a lot of people that were writing about them you don't have a lot of publications um and we find that they were sort of marginalized but they were very important because of you know, the impact that they had, that lyrics had. Because, you know, they were, we're talking about the feminist movement and the, you know, the, whenever the, the feminist movement came about after the civil rights movement, sort of kind of followed the civil so rights movement. But you have to, you know, the, 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 the black women were not really, quote unquote, a part of that same movement, but they were doing it all alone. You know, they they these those those women that I just talked about, they were strong women. You have to be strong to deal with that environment. They really had to be strong. Now they talked about it in their lyrics. They didn't, you know, go and protest and do you know all the things that you know you you saw during the you know the the feminist movement and suffrage suffragists and all of that in the early but they talked about it in their lyrics. And that's why I love like Angela Davis's book because she goes down and she translates, she, she transcribes or she listens to the music and then transcribes them all herself. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of them you can find now, you can find the lyrics, but Angela Davis went and she took, cause she wanted to understand what they were saying. They were telling you what they were going through in those lyrics. And that's where we find the information. Okay. And it's good to, to do their bios, and you know, a lot of musicologists and ethnomusicologists will look at their music and just you know analyze the music to the hilt. But you got to look at the sociological effects of what was happening to them. And you know, you have to look at their lives and what did that mean for the black community. The black community, not just the women. But the whole black community, and the the settings and the venues that they were performing, and the other things that they were going through in life, it's all in the lyrics.
0: Okay.
1: So that's why you really need to study their lyrics to, to know. You can tell a lot about a person by what they're putting in their lyrics. You can tell a lot about a person, you know, even by how they compose. Like, like who that? what does?
0: Holiday made that uh, song "Strange Fruit."
1: yeah and that's that's a powerful soul yes it is. <laughs> and, and and that's another thing about it a lot you know they they were touring the country and they they came to the south you know because of economic reasons but they really didn't like touring the south because you saw things like that bodies hanging from trees you know strange fruit and and so they got she, Tons of lyrics like that, you know. That's just one of the more powerful ones that have gotten out there, and most people know what you know now what she's talking about. But just think of some of the other songs that they have written, they, 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 and a lot of them personally experienced. Exactly. Back then. Exactly. That's why when they get up and sing those songs, you know, it's not just something I just decided to write. But I've actually experienced this. <laughs> you know, you have experiential learning here, and you're writing about it. So that's their life their life story, you just look at their lyrics, you know.
0: So the women or the men are the ones who move the blues forward, how, how would
1: you? Well, both of them did it, but in a different way. You know, like I was saying, the women were basically the classic blues singers, and uh, the men uh, were, you know, the country blues, and then go into the, uh, the urban blues sound, you know, which coming into the forties now, and that's why I talk about the big blues bands. Uh, you just have to, you know, get more instruments just to play to us. Nice. Most people think that, you know, during that time, well, we're migrating, we're moving north, and it's going to be better. And a lot of them were disappointed after they got to Chicago and New York and St. Louis and all these places, because racism was everywhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they thought, you know, you know, the grass was much greener on the other side. Well, you know, some of these same things were happening in, in just well, another way. Well, like my way.
0: grandfather told me, the grass might be greener on the other side, but it might be a snake in it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it could be greener. Could be? But <laughs> the like well, won't say it could be worse than them. <laughs> now, that was uh, what the man named I was, Solomon North. Now, you ever heard of him? Yeah. Was he blue? These ain't blues or he was a no, he was No, he was a violinist. Violinist. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay then. Yeah. But it was during the time of slavery.
1: Yeah, he was during, yeah, <coughs> 12 years of slavery.
0: And he would play inside the big house.
1: hmm. Yeah. Mostly the string instruments, you know, the fiddle, violin, and um, uh, banjo. Mostly string instruments. Because you could really, you know, you could do a jig and people could dance oh, off yeah. with just oh, one oh, banjo. Oh,
0: oh, 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 yeah, we could can, we can, we can bring it to life. <laughs> then did, we bring it to life, you know. One and thing you remember, like, they banned the drums. They, what you mean, banned the drums? They
1: banned the drums from cool. various plantations because, uh, well, particularly lot of the Africans could communicate, communicate with drums.
0: So they could not have drums on the plantation?
1: Right, it was in New Orleans that they only let the drum- drummers play in Congo Square on Sundays. Everywhere else in the South, they banned the drums. And the only time you could play them in New Orleans was on Sundays in Congo Square.
0: Now, I've heard that, but now give us a little more history. So back in those days, you could not, drums was big at that time?
1: No. You know, well, but was it big and, and other bands just that we couldn't play? No, 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 no. We're talking oh, about okay. the institution of slavery. All right. When Africans brought here from various areas in West Africa, particularly when they were brought to Louisiana, Senegambians were the first ones to be brought in. The rest of them came in later, you know, from the Congo, from, um, you know, from Nigeria. But, but they knew that they could communicate they were communicating in their various countries with drum because the the tones depending on what the tone you know most african languages are tonal languages so the tones could mean you know you a group of tones from different levels of the tone you could communicate with them and so when the planners figured this out that they could communicate by drums they banned the drums
0: because they, they think because they, they
1: felt that yeah they thought you know they you know you have all the revolts and, and so they say yeah, they can communicate with you. you can communicate from one plantation to the other you got drumming you know they drumming each other so they banned the drums and New Orleans or you might say South Louisiana was one of those very interesting areas of the South that was very different than any others because. We had so many flags flown, you had the Sp- French first, then the Spanish, then the British, you know, so you had this t- mixture of uh, colonizers and the French and Spanish um, were allowing them to perform on Sundays, you could um, y- you could dance, you could drum, you, you know, c- c- communicate with each other in that space. And you could either grow your own produce, you can come and sell your produce in that space, so it's like a market. And it wasn't started by the Africans, it was started by the indigenous people because that was their produce market where they would bring the produce in to sell to the colonizers. But so this was a place where they would bring, also let the Africans come to do their rituals and you know the drumming and you know, right. dancing singing but, but also it communication was
0: a, it was also a good business model yes it gave people a reason to come out there to buy produce because there would be some entertainment going
1: on. yeah strong uh, so the whole economic system was coming get, up get out of that fitting, too yes mm-hmm.
0: yeah. now now the blues and the drums do they go hand in hand i thought the blues and
1: the guitar well mostly the blues and the guitar yeah <laughs> <laughs> i just want to make sure now. Just <laughs> most bluesmen talk about how their first guitar was a cigar box and a pole and they put that pole in the cigar box and string up uh some, some string on it and that was their first guitar most many of them talk about how they made their first guitar but you always got the stories of the first guitar whether they got it out of the garbage can somebody else threw it away oh. and they fixed it and then there's the Disney book <laughs> Before you could even make a guitar, you could do a diddly bow, and that's just putting a piece of string on the side of a house, and you connect it on each end, and you pluck it. So <laughs> that great. So that's uh, a diddly bow. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: they, they, was, they was creating all these instruments. That's right. And, and singing. Now, the guy, uh, Al, who gave you the history of... Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax. You say you spent some time with him, In where, where did he live in?
1: He was in New York. He
0: was in New he York. He lived
1: in New York. So, so I, I caught the train from Washington, D.C., because I was living in Washington at the time, and I get trained from Washington, D.C. to New York and uh, went to visit with him.
0: That's a story all by itself, dude, just, yes. to hear, just to hear <laughs> you. Now, once again, we got Dr. Joyce Marie Jackson, uh, Madam Chair of the LSU Department of Geography and Anthropology, Mm-hmm. And also, folklorists. 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 And ethnomusicologists. And what is it?
1: Ethnomusicologist, ethnomusicologist. ethnomusicologist and a bluesologist. Well, I say all that.
0: <laughs> the last bluesologist we had in this area was a, uh, our friend, Brother E. Rodney Jones. So, you're going to take Brother E. Rodney Jones, <laughs> no, please? No, I'm
1: not trying to take
0: this. I don't know. I, don't know. I, think, <laughs> I think right now she got so much to talk about when it comes to the blues that we're going to have to give her <laughs> own show. So, you ready to start your own show? No, now? I'm
1: not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we we just so much going on with you and the blues, because you have interviewed countless numbers of bluesmen.
1: Oh, yeah, um, right. Yeah, well, well, I was interested in knowing what was the status of the blues in Baton Rouge now. Well, I started in the late 80s. That's when I came back to Baton Rouge. In the 80s? The late 80s, and I had an t- opportunity to, to interview Tabby Thomas and Silas Holden, and we, you know, look at Silas Holden as being the godfather of the blues in this area. And then Tabby was right there. He was like, you know, just opening the doors. We have Tabby's blues Block box. That is, you know, was torn down for the interstate. Yeah, part of the yeah, interstate. Yeah, I used to go to Tabby Blues Box. And uh, but Tabby was the one that actually opened his doors to anybody because he had these jam sessions. So even you thought you could play the blues, you could come in and get on his stage and play with whoever else was playing. And so people just loved it. You know, a lot of the LSU students would go to go to Tabby's Blues Box. And I would go, some of my students would do their projects. It, it, and it was truly a hole in the wall. It was all hole in the wall. wall. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to go to the bathroom, like, good love. It was our authentic juke joy here in yeah, Baton Rouge. Authentic is a good, good choice of
2: words.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we miss Tabby. But he has off. the legacy of his sons, you know? So his sons are doing a great job in carrying the blues on. Like Chris Thomas came, and I've interviewed him and uh just and he he's one of the ones that you know I, he's written a book on the blues and he talks about the fact that well he argues in his book why the blues the, the origins does just not have to be in mississippi but we have all this evidence of the origins of the blues also in louisiana uh, but he, yeah, he's written a lot. i really had a, some good conversations with him some interviews and everything Yeah, and 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 I had a chance I, it it's interesting I interviewed their dad in the 80s and then to come back and interview him You know like a few years ago and then with Silas Hogan, I interviewed him in the 80s And I had a chance to interview his Sam Hogan. This is his uh, son uh, I had a chance to interview him So it's good to juxtapose the dad and the sons, you know years later and now I'm interviewing the sons, and I talk to them also about their dads and their influence—the the, the influence that their dads had on them. Now
0: we're talking about blues, but when, and you 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 also go do interviews at the jazz festival.
1: Oh yeah. Of bluesmen and everybody. Yeah, well, I normally do uh, gospel music yeah, when I'm at the jazz okay. festival because it, it was so many people in you know in New Orleans that are doing blues and jazz, so they'll call me in to usually do the gospel uh, performers that come in for the jazz festival. Yeah, on the uh,
0: how long you how long you been doing that? Oh
1: God, I don't know. I came back here in the late '80s, '86, um, '87, and uh, I, they started they hired me at the Jazz Fest. I, I I ran a stage, the African Heritage stage at the Jazz Festival for about five years, and um, and then not you know now they just you know they call me in ver- various um, uh, entertain. Uh, gospel musicians to, to interview them. So,
0: well, Just recently, Baton Rouge had its jazz festival after a couple of years of not having it. Blues, the blues, blues festival. Festival. Baton Rouge had its blues festival uh, down here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you did some interviews then at the Baton Rouge Blues Festival. Yes, so, I interviewed you so you So you're back, you're back in stride again with doing the interviews. <laughs> yeah, so. So I enjoy you, it. You enjoy that?
1: I definitely enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So, well, I learned so much from from my, you know the people that I work with. Now
0: there the was people. one young man that you, that I met through you at the Blues Festival.
1: And His name was Pascal Danay and the group that uh, his the name of his group was Delgres. Very interesting group of uh, performers, uh, sort of. Uh, definitely looked at the blues very strongly in his his compositions but also included some of his Guadalupean music and you know so it was just a mixture and it was really good. Um, We also, well I interviewed Eddie Cotton which was um, uh, he was a wonderful person to interview. He was a bluesman from Mississippi. He's also a minister of music in his church but you know we know how that uh, blues and gospel uh, sort of uh, intertwines with each other. Some of our most famous gospel performers performed the blues and wrote blues music for Ma Rainey, that being Thomas Dorsey. And uh, of course, a lot of the blues performers get their uh, grounding or their foundation from the church. And Eddie Cotton is one of those. And he's continuing with the church. He you know, really proudly talked about the fact that he was a minister of music in his church, but also performs the blues. Now, we also had Lil Freddie King, Robert Finley, Alabama Slim. These were just some of the other folks that we interviewed and that were performers at the um, night, the 2022 Blues Festival.
0: Well, we had a good, op- a good. Uh, it was a good chance. That's why I enjoyed that. Uh, thank you for inviting me and my daughter out for that uh, event, because it had been quite some time since, you know, it had, in a, any music fest or anything going on but you know louisiana is just a wonderful time this time of the year for festivals mm-hmm. so they got festivals every day all day long and different and uh seem like every day almost every weekend but every, every, every th- thursday through sundays mm-hmm. in louisiana they got a festival somewhere and somebody <laughs> gonna be pl- playing or singing the blues mm-hmm. now see so who are now we got the Neil family that we talked about are still playing the blues like kenny Neil, uh lil ray uh, the brother Larry and some other ones, but who are some other bluesmen in this?
1: Oscar Harpo Davis, and they call him Harpo because uh, he plays the, the the harmonica. Then there's Lazy Lester, and um, let's see, uh, and then some women like April Jackson. She's a um, a local performer, blues performer. Stephanie Alexander and Pat Hatcher all of them you know perform the blues and rhythm and blues and then we have others like Larry Gardner. Larry Gardner is quite an interesting performer. He travels the world performing He actually plays more internationally than he does um, here in in, uh, Louisiana or in the United States and I actually had uh, the opportunity to um, bring him to Senegal with me uh, several years ago and uh, he was able to perform with a Senegalese blues performer and then we have Smokehouse and Mamie Porter and they definitely say that they are the gut bucket blues performers <laughs> they, they wear it proudly <laughs> and then we have Henry Turner uh, he's a R&B blues performer too and, and there are many others but the blues is alive and well in this region. But you know,
0: because a lot of people, the blues are st- is still, in other words, I want to say the blues is still going strong in Louisiana.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so.
0: But I just kind of wanted to talk about some of the, the blues moves just to give credit. And you're part of the, also, the, uh, what foundation
1: that is? Ridge Blues Foundation. I'm a, a board member. And that mm-hmm. been in existence for 27 years oh a long on. time yeah yeah,
2: yeah. And,
0: and, and that's who did the interviews the blues Foundation. yeah well
1: you know we institute well it's been going on now for a number of years where you actually have what you call a backstory of the backstage stage and we do it in the old state capital uh and we bring in the bluesmen usually before they perform and interview them or, or after they perform but we try to get them in before they perform but and that's we well, usually do about four Four to
0: five a day. Well, mm-hmm. what well, doctor Jackson. We just want to welcome you back to count time and thank you for the insightfulness on the blues, the south, the Southern blues. we call it what they call us.
1: Well, they call it swamp, blues. swamp blues in Louisiana, Southern Louisiana. They call it the swamp blues. Uh, they call them down home blues. So it's a lot, <laughs> a lot of names.
0: But, um, yeah. So now these, but these these bluesmen are still going strong and bluesmen male
1: and female yeah, yeah women too
0: and mm-hmm. uh, so we want to welcome y'all back to Louise come to Louisiana to hear the blues because you can check online they got festivals everywhere or you can and we thank everybody once again for joining count we thank you Dr uh, Jackson for being uh, here once again it's
1: my pleasure thank all you right. for so, inviting
0: me all right then we are gonna probably be jump starting the uh, 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 the Dr. Joyce Jackson, bluesologist, talk show. No. Are you ready for it? No. <laughs> well, y'all sit in and encourage Dr. Jackson. Let her know that she is truly a bluesologist. She got the history. She got the information. We need to keep it. We need to carry it on. Thank you, Doc. Okay, thank you. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.